0: Welcome to More to Come, P.W. Comic World's weekly podcast on comics and graphic novel publishing. I'm Calvin Reed, Senior News Editor of Publishers Weekly and co-editor of P.W. Comics World. I'm also editor of The Fanatic, P.W.'s uh, twice a month comics and pop culture newsletter. Check us out online at publishersweekly.com slash comics. All right, uh, More to Come listeners. Uh, I have a treat. It's a treat for me. It's going to be a treat for you. Uh, I hope it's a treat for Joe. <laughs> but <laughs> and so that's my hint. We uh I've got the great pleasure we're talking with Joe Sacco. We're gonna talk to him about his new book, Paying the Land. Um uh really an extraordinary work that attempts to really cover this the an extraordinary range of history. Physical, a physical landscape that's remote and beautiful, Um uh, and also look at, looked at the, the the challenges, the suffering, uh, uh the future of Native people, uh, I mean really all across the Northwest uh, Territories. It's an, an amazing and ambitious work, like so many of your other works. Uh, hey Joe, uh, welcome to More To Come.
1: Uh, it's a great pleasure to be here, and thanks for that introduction. It was very generous.
0: Well, you know what? I just want to add a little bit more to it just so people know. Uh, you are the author of Footnotes in Gaza. You are the author of Palestine, Journalism, Safe, safe Area Garage. I just want to get give people uh, a sense of the work. I haven't talked to you in a long time, but I can't look at this book and not think about uh, the, uh, what you've done in this new book that looks at the um, – uh, the life, really the culture and really in some ways the the challenges toward their future of First Nations uh, people in Canada. So now that's my take. Uh, I'd love for you to give uh, the Joe Sacco uh,
1: overview of just what you were doing with this book. Right. Um, I wanted to do a book about climate change. I wanted to get away from the more violent stories that I'd been covering. Um, and I thought about resource extraction uh, in, in its relationship to climate change. And I thought, well, where, where are resources extracted? Hmm. It's always in the periphery. It always happens to affect indigenous people. So hmm. I went up to the Northwest Territories um, for a French magazine hmm. to do a story about that. While I was there, it was clear to me there was a lot more going on. Mm. It wasn't so simple as indigenous people solely consider consider themselves the stewards of the land and they're against resource extraction. It's more complicated than that. And I realized that they were operating within the context and framework of colonialism. Mm-hmm. This ongoing uh historical process that had been happening to them and is still happening to them. So it was clear there was a lot going on and I decided to make a second trip back because I thought this, the story was worth more than just a magazine piece and I decided to make it my next book. Hmm. And it became very complicated because you, you realize that, uh, I was trying to get away from violence in a way, but there was, there's a lot of violence. There's yeah. a lot of violence in that colonial within the colonial domination of the indigenous people. Well, uh, certainly
0: one thing the book uh, is about is the psychological damage that has been done to n- native peoples throughout the Northwest Territory. Um, and and you, it, it, your overview has brought up so many of the issues in the book that I want to talk about. Um, the, 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 the legacy of tradition, um, the you know, basically the call of modern civilization, um, so much uh the way uh native children have been um, uh for want of a better word actually brainwashed uh um, by the majority culture in Canada. But let, let let's start from the beginning. Okay, so uh, um, obviously you were looking for climate change and while that topic does come up uh and it certainly hoofers in the background all through the book, um, I mean you go right to the source. I mean there are Extremely uh, valuable resources in these native lands, as beautiful and as vast as these territories are. And, um, people want them, although, you know, of course, the market has some influence over that, and you talk about that quite a bit. Uh, but, um, you said you went back a second time. Now, in the book, it seems as though you were there for a very long, extended period because you, you seem to go from one end of the territories to the other. So let's start off with some of the people, uh, uh, that you, uh, uh, they're partnered with you and also uh, are a key in the story. But I, I want to hear about Shauna uh, – what's it, Shauna Morgan?
1: Shauna Morgan.
0: Shauna Morgan. Yeah, well, we have to talk about her.
1: <laughs> yeah, well, uh, she would actually contacted me uh, some time ago and wanted to try to arrange a visit for me to Yellowknife, which is the capital of the Northwest Territories, mm-hmm. to talk about my book on the Palestinians. Oh really? <laughs> uh, Yeah. So this so, is a book of misdirections. So you start in one direction and you head in another. <laughs> well, in certain it, it's funny because she said, you know, and if you come here, there's a lot going on with indigenous people. Okay. There's a big uh toxic site here, the giant mine where they were, mm-hmm. you know, drilling for gold, mm-hmm. looking for gold. And she said if you come up here, there's a lot of things going on with indigenous people, and I know a lot of the communities. She she worked for a a sort of a green centric organization up there. And she said, I'll introduce you around. And, you know, I get a lot of invitations and I thought, well, that's nice. and uh, Sounds interesting, but I've got too much to do right now. A few years later, I was thinking I'd like to do something about the climate change, but I I really want to always approach things a bit obliquely. Mm -hmm. And who are the first people impacted by what ends up turning into climate change? So indigenous people. Mm -hmm. And in the back of my head, I thought, I wonder if that person is still – in Yellowknife, and if she still would be interested in facilitating a story, I, I was almost thinking of maybe think of doing a comparative study, something in South America, hmm. maybe something in Australia or India that also had to do with indigenous people. Um, I contacted her; um, she was happy to hear from me. This was three years later, hmm. and um, we we sort of went back and forth, and we organized the trip. And since I didn't really know that the territories of the communities, she sort of was the facilitator. Came up with sort of an agenda. Mm-hmm. I wanted to. At, at first, I wanted to see a very broad sweep, mm-hmm. um, and that's what we did. You know, I flew up there, We introduced ourselves to each other, and we just sort of got into a car and started doing the work. Well, um, she's got a lot of skills, obviously, and she's got a lot of skills for the land. Um, no, she's <laughs> good at that. <it. laughs> yes, I'm um, not. I'm not a store person, Calvin. I'm like, a, I'm a really bad Oregonian. You know, it's like to me, it's like, what is is that? How many stars on that tent? Is it a five star tent or a four star tent? You you're know, like, ah, well, <laughs> well, I but, mean, you I'm- know. You
0: deal with a lot of very serious topics and, uh, serious relations with this book. And as happens in some of your other books, uh, you seem to use yourself, uh, as a figure of comedy to some extent to the
1: change of, as a change of pace. Well, I mean, in reality, I was, even in my own eyes, I'm, I'm a figure of comedy. I felt so out of place up there. I mean, I'm a, i am was astonished at the beauty. Mm-hmm. Um but as someone said to me before I went, someone from Canada said, Oh, you're gonna have a great time, it's beautiful, you can get killed up there. Okay. <laughs> you know, just from if something happens and you're in the in the cold, I, I wouldn't know the first thing what to do. Sure. But um you really have to respect the land also, right? So um uh, to me it was uh, unusual to be in such a, a frigid environment. Hmm. But awe-inspiring too, I have to say.
0: Um and Amazingly, I mean, I, and I mean that in the greatest respect is that your drawings reflect that too. I mean, uh, it's, it's, um, I, I, we're gonna talk about that because, I mean, obviously one of the things about your works is your ability to pack an enormous amount of detail into your pages, but that they still breathe with the life of the community you're depicting. Um, uh, and, and, the, and the narrative in many cases when they go these, these amazing spreads, uh, the narrative seems baked into them, you know, as you go through uh, the text. So it, it's a, it's, it's your own little superpower. Um, but it, 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 <laughs> it you, you, it's still working for you. Uh, the book opens with, um, and this, this happens throughout the book, uh, as you get various local people, leaders, uh, to talk about their lives and the, and the, um, the situation of their communities. Tell us about Paul Andrew. if
1: If I'm not mistaken, he opens the book. He does open the book. Um, he was someone I met in Yellowknife. Mm-hmm. He's from Toledo, the community of Toledo. At one point, he was a, a, a chief up in Toledo. I, I don't even bring that up. Mm-hmm. But I heard many things about what the land meant to people and how, what life was like on, on the land. But when I sat down with him, he just started telling this story and he told it so beautifully and so clearly that, it seemed really appropriate to start the book with him. Mm -hmm. He grew up on the land. He was on the land, uh, as a young boy. And, you know, for the Dene people, they are part of the land. They don't separate themselves in the way we do in the West. Mm -hmm. So he was able to really give me an idea of what it was like growing up in those communities to respect the land, to believe you're part of it. Um, to feel within a you're within a community within your family structure where you, that you belong, he was able to give me a really great sort of his unfolding story was it was just a beautiful exposition on what it was like to grow up in the bush, hmm. and in a way it was a good way I realized it was a good way to start the story because we're going to show how all that has changed mm-hmm. in the course of the book and what are the specific things that changed it.
0: Now, he also went on to become, uh, a, a politician in the, um, the, you know, in the
1: mainstream sense, yes? He was a premier well, of, or how is you, that? No, that, we're talking about other people then because, uh, oh, did you Oh, okay, sorry. That no, my, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Paul Andrew was, became a chief for his own people. In fact, he was, when he was young, he was almost being raised to be a leader. Okay. Um, as a, as a young person. So, um, he was, you know, within local Dene structures. Mm-hmm. He was considered a chief, mm-hmm. um, uh, and and you talk with
0: several uh, chiefs um, throughout your your, your trip right. here. Um, right. uh, but that that um, that break between the land and modern culture, uh, between government support. I mean, this comes up time and time again. Um, and of course, um, the 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 powers that these this resource extraction has over the future, uh, the immediate future as well as the, as the long term future. Why don't we? Uh, before I want to talk about fracking and oil, but before that, uh, maybe you can tell us a little bit about when I was uh, about the people, the First Nation people. When I was doing the piece that I mentioned to you earlier, this book from Highwater Water Press uh, called "This Place: One Hundred and Fifty Years Retold." Um, one of I was asking one of the um, well, the artist uh, who worked on some of the stories to help me with the pronunciation, and she uh, laughed and said, "You know what? Uh, we all have our our individual, you know, uh, cultures and languages, and I don't even know how to pr- pronounce it." Can you can you talk a little bit about the range of peoples uh, that you encounter, and also, and when we talk about the Northwest Territories, in case there's someone who doesn't know, we're talking about the very top of Canada. You really, are right right. near the Arctic Circle, I see.
1: Right. Well, my trip took me from Yellowknife, which is sort of sort of in the south of the Northwest Northwest Territories, all the way up to, to Norman Wells, up the Mackenzie River River Valley. Mm-hmm. And I wasn't in all the regions. There are mm-hmm. there are five regions in the Northwest Territories, mm-hmm. populated by the Dené people, mm-hmm. and basically they have the same language group. So it's the Athapascan language, North Athapascan language. Mm-hmm. And they each have their own dialect, but they have cultural, uh, similarities between them. Uh, they would each recognize each other as, as Dene, as, as, as a, as a complete people. Mm. So th- most of my time was spent in the Decho, which is one of the regions and the Satu, which mm. is another region and in the Akecho territory. And uh, my pronunciation, I'm sure is, is pretty bad too. <laughs> so, uh, you know, and I have to always have to apologize for something like that. But uh, that those were the main peoples I spoke to, and you, you, you met people in Yellowknife who hadn't spent much time on the land; they'd grown up, mm-hmm. um, maybe going out to their communities occasionally. And then I went to small communities where that's really what they knew—that small community living, hmm. isolated, sometimes hmm. off the main highway. You could only reach it by wheels a couple of months a year when the road is frozen. Yeah, the winter. Otherwise, it's fly in,
0: fly out. Well, of course, you have an, an interesting sequence about uh, Shauna and yourself and, and your car and driving on these ice roads with massive trucks also
1: coming in the opposite yeah. direction.
0: Uh, sounds yeah. exciting. Yeah,
1: the ice roads are on the rivers and on the lakes. But once you get into the mountains, it's a winter road, which is much trickier, very narrow. But, you know, when we were there, well, normally there would have been a lot of a lot of trucks going back and forth if uh the natural gas was being oil and natural gas was working right but mm-hmm. but uh, because the oil prices were sure. down natural gas prices are down around the world um that sort of activity begins to cease mm-hmm. so we were sort of lucky in the way we didn't come across a lot of a lot of heavy trucks
0: um i want to i want us to start talking about the fracking and the oil and the gas. But maybe you can also give our listeners a little bit of background on uh, the treaties. Uh, I hope I'm not taking this out of sequence so that it's confusing. Mm -hmm. But the treaty situation, I think at one point in the book, um, uh, you said uh, rather than the slaughter that we saw south of uh, Canada in in this country with native people, uh, it was perhaps a little more depth above uh, in the Canadian uh, In Canadian history, where they use treaties, although certainly the Americans use treaties to their own end down here too. But you talk about the treaties, and in particular, uh, the 1970s efforts by native people to organize and address these treaties. And I think uh, driven by this, uh, if I'm not mistaken, the uh, uh, um, oil companies and fracking companies looking to to extract resources.
1: Well, basically, you know, at the very, at the at the beginning in the Northwest Territories, uh, settlers weren't that interested in in that area because settlers were generally agricultural mm. agriculturalists, and so the soil wasn 't really good for agricultural work. Mm. The government began to be very interested in that area when they found gold and oil mm-hmm. and suddenly, if you want to control the land, you have to suddenly now they have to control the people they can 't just let them loose so There was a long process of basically getting people off the land or with the treaties, having them agree to cede, extinguish their rights to the land. Mm -hmm. So treaties were uh, in the late 1800s and up to about 1920, Mm 21. Trees were signed with individual communities in the Northwest Territories where basically for – a pittance for some some yeah. annuities uh, a five dollar annuity for each person mm-hmm. a few trinkets some fishnets things like that they agreed to yield all the rights to their land which was meaningless from an indigenous standpoint mm-hmm. from a dene standpoint that was meaningless because they didn't think the, they owned the land they thought the land owned sure. them and you know as westerners you know we think it, we think in terms of like Land is property and ownership is, is got that John Lockean thing where ownership is determined by the sweat and labor you're putting into the land. And as far as white people are concerned, basically, (laughs) you know, the, if, if you're hunting, that's not ownership. You're not anyway. So it has a completely Mm -hmm. different viewpoint, view of world view of what land is. (laughs) So then the idea was to you know, control the people through treaties, which they did. But later, some of that got questioned. Mm-hmm. Uh, some Uh In the early 70s, mm-hmm. uh, a, a number of chiefs uh, basically had a, a suit against the government saying, uh, content, contesting this whole idea of ownership of Aboriginal land. Mm-hmm. And a Supreme Court justice of the Northwest Territories went to different communities to talk to people about this. And he determined... That, as far as he was concerned, there was real doubt as if, as to whether Indigenous people had transferred title over to the government of Canada.
0: There were two principal ca- uh, cases, right? The Paulette yes. case, and then, of course, yeah. the Berger uh, inquiry, uh, but all, both yeah. of them roughly in the mid 1970s.
1: Yeah, that's mm. right. And, and, and so what the Paulette case has put it, sort of put into dispute who actually was owning the land. Uh-huh. So when there was a pipeline being built down, was going to be built down the Mackenzie River Valley, it became very important to actually formalize what all this meant. So who did control the land? Uh-huh. Um, and basically what the Berger Inquiry, which is another Supreme Court justice of uh-huh. British Columbia then, went around. He spent two years going to talk to people to get the sense of in, what indigenous people felt about the land, what, a pipeline would mean to them, and all that was compiled into the uh, the Berger Inquiry mm-hmm. report, yeah. mm-hmm. and it, it was sort of clear that they didn't think they'd given the land over at all. <laughs> yeah, right. So, so what? What he said, he put a moratorium on this pipeline for a number of years until basically until the land disputes could be settled, and that's when we get into this whole land claim process that began to unfold. From the late 70s on, it's still, still ongoing. Yeah, yeah.
0: In fact, um,
1: uh, I, I think in my
0: uh, work with the other book that I mentioned earlier, uh, one of the um, writers point out a speech that was given by one of the chiefs. And, and I think he, there's an image of him in your book, Frank tells, uh, c- so Cicely, uh that uh, he, he likened uh, almost to a speech by uh, Martin Luther King that he delivered at the uh, – uh, a visionary speech that laid out uh, the ambition – the visionary ambition of uh, the Dene people. So um, – but um, I noticed, of course, you had an, uh, an illustration of him in there as well. Uh, and, I, I, and I'm going – giving our, our listeners this background because now I do want to go into a little bit about uh, – a lot, actually, about um, uh, uh, the background on fracking, uh, the oil and gas uh, extraction – and, um, the personalities that you talk to, uh, that are striving to somehow or other make this world, uh, adaptable to the Diné people. Um, where should we start? Um, well, you mentioned two, uh, people very early on, uh, what, Stephen Kakfui? Yeah. And, uh, Jim Antoine? Yes. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about them?
1: Yeah, those are, uh, Stephen Cacfui, uh, was from, uh, Fort Good Hope. He is from Fort Good Hope. He now lives in Yellowknife. And he, and Jim Antoine was from Fort Simpson, still lives in Fort Simpson. And these two guys, I, I, they they helped me tell the story of that, that great politici- politicization that happened in the 1970s
2: mm-hmm.
1: when the Denny people, looking outward at what else was going on in the world, with the civil rights movement here in the United States, with AIM, the American Indian movement, with other revolutionary struggles around the world, something was going on, and people were becoming politicized, and they were becoming politicized. Mm. And the Berger inquiry was something that they helped prepare the grounds for. They they basically went around telling people, this guy's going to come through. He's going to be asking a lot of questions. And so they began gathering materials like uh what was the extent of people's movements around the land. Where did people take their dog sleds? Where were people trapping and hunting and all that mm-hmm. to show the great use of the land mm-hmm. by people? So a lot of groundwork was done. So through them I tell the the rise of the Indian Brotherhood, which yes, later became the yes. Dene Nation. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, and then the conflicts within themselves because – they, especially Stephen Cactwey, is, is quite militant. Mm-hmm. But the elders, who were not speakers of English, this younger group, Stephen and, and Jim, were English speakers at the time. Um, the elders were sort of pushing them to become part of the government structures.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: The reason was they thought, if you become part of the government, then we will be sitting across the table from you. You will understand us and you will help us Um achieve some of our aims and ambitions. And I think each of those people had a lot of internal struggles about that. Yes, yeah. which you document uh, also. Which I document. And they both decided to listen to their elders, to get involved in the white structures, basically. And whatever the cost to them personally, um, they tried to do what was best for indigenous peoples throughout the Northwest Territories. And they both rose... To the position mm-hmm. of premiership, which is the highest position right. in the Northwest territories. But, you know, you'd never know it from, uh, from visiting them. I mean, Stephen Cackthweed, to him, it's like, uh, he did his job. That was it. He has no attachment to it. Mm-hmm. Jim Antoine, there's, there's just no heirs in these people at all. Yeah. They were there to do a job. And, you know, maybe some indigenous activists would maybe fault them for becoming part of a structure, but I think they were fully aware of what they were doing. And they were being asked to do it, yeah. by elders, yeah, well, that's another
0: uh, interesting aspect of the of the story here uh the conflict between a younger generation and an older generation uh for the the nature of of leadership um uh but I do want you to talk a little bit about the impact of fracking, and maybe what we can do that is through the personality of what's his name- uh, Harry Dinneron.
1: Harry Dinneron, yes uh okay who seems to
0: be who really is a has a, an an interesting and complex relationship to development and um what did it what do they call it uh backtracking uh, living in the bush yeah. um, um he, he seems to manage to be
1: holding up both at the same time <laughs> you know a lot of people they they're balancing this thing i mean i think almost every indigenous person at their core if the land was really Absolutely important to them. Stewardship of the land was always something that everyone mentioned, even if they were pro-resource extraction. Harry Deneron, um, had been chief on and off for about 40 years in the hamlet of Fort Liard, which is in the south, southwest part of the Northwest territories. And he was chief when I, when I went to see him. And he, I mean, Fort Liard was, is sitting on, what the Canadian government thinks is the ninth biggest, uh, natural gas reserve on earth. Okay. Hm. It's huge. Hm. Um, to him, it's like this should be something we can control and we can make a lot of money out of. A lot of other indigenous communities have an ambivalent relationship with resource extraction. They're not quite as gung-ho as him. In a lot of ways, I think a lot of indigenous – indigenous, other indigenous leaders would see him as he's on the outside Mm -hmm. of sort of, let's say, mainstream Mm -hmm. indigenous thought. But he's an interesting guy because he'd also gone up through the pain of the residential school. He'd also, during the Berger inquiry, was quite skeptical of the natural resources. But to him, he felt like the main issue was control. Mm -hmm. You know – If we can control this, if we can get something out of this, then it would be good for our community. Because for what he saw in his community was that a lot of people were dependent on government handouts. Yeah, In communities, it's most of the income that's coming in is government handouts. Yeah, And to him, what he saw were all the social costs of government handouts. Yeah. The government way is no hope. Government, the government way is no hope. You know, it's funny because it made me sort of rethink the concept of welfare on some level because sure. I can see, I can see his point. Mm. From his point of view, if you want people to have dignity, they have to have work and all that. But the, now what are the, the only work structures though are the, the oil and gas work structures, it seems. So you're kind of a bit damned if you do and damned if mm. you don't. But he was, he was trying to figure out ways to monetize things. Um, there was a, a, another site where they had been, uh, doing a, had a mine in the seventies that was basically a contaminated place. And to him, it's like, we'll set up a company. You can contract us to clean it up. Or if you are going to frack, fracking costs a lot of, uh, it, it takes a lot of water. He said, you know, we'll, we'll build a dam and then we'll sell you the water to frack. He wasn't against the concept himself. Mm-hmm. You know, he thought, "How do we break a cycle of dependency on mm-hmm. uh, on Canada?" Mm-hmm, sure. So I understood some of that. I understood some of that, but he was he was definitely um, seeing that because oil and gas the prices were plummeting, nothing was going on anyway, mm-hmm. and because of land claim settlements, disputes with neighboring communities, he wasn't making any headway. So, you know, he was kind of trapped, and, and in, in his mind, he was thinking, "Yeah, maybe we should just go back to the land." Uh, he had a, he had a, a friend who was, uh, watching our interview who had sort of done just that. I'm not sure exactly to the extent, but he was living on the land Mm. more than most people were. And maybe this was a way of getting your self-worth and dignity back in his eyes. It was kind of odd because he was pro-resource extraction. But in the end, boy, if you're not going to give us that avenue, then maybe we have to go back on the land. And, and no, it's in in the
0: course of reading the book, it's sort of a startling, uh, you know, Point when he, I mean, he's very business oriented. He's an entrepreneur himself. Uh, I mean, I mean, one of the things that you, you talk on the, about the book and I, we didn't, I, I kind of leaped over the residential schools. um uh, but they, that has another incredible impact, I think, on the thinking of these men that you're talking about. Um, uh, uh that they it disconnects them from their communities in ways uh as we have a younger generation that was sent off to schools to learn uh the white canadian culture uh that lose their skills uh for the land uh and we're caught in this contemporary society where uh, mm-hmm. uh many of the older folks who came off of the land aren't really excited to go back to it necessarily and the younger people are unequipped to do it, um, uh, and and in this extremely re- remote regions, they're really, you know, either the government provides work or the land provides work, or there's nothing in between. It's it's really an amazing dilemma that they uh, find themselves in. So, but and I, that long interlude there is for me the jump to the family. What of the Dolphus Jumbo family? One of the chiefs, what can you tell us about sure. him? He had and I'm interested in him, particularly I think because of his daughter, Jessica, which I think highlights the role uh, and the complications that women seem to be facing uh, in uh, uh, some of the Native communities.
1: Right. Well, what, what was interesting about almost any community we went into was that often there was a male chief. It's not I mean, there are female chiefs. Mm-hmm. There was Fort Simpson at a certain point. Um and also in Jean Marie River, it's like a it was actually founded by three sisters. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Uh, yeah. Uh but what we notice when you go into a band office, which is sort of the um Canadian government accepted um governmental unit of the of each individual community, you notice a lot of women are doing the clerical work, um they are, they're basically keeping the communities together in, in the functioning department, in, in the, in the way of like setting things up and mm-hmm. who's doing this, who's doing that. The men might be the chiefs. And we, we always noticed that there was a b- very few young men working in those places, mm-hmm. which, you know, is, is something that, um, I think it presents a dilemma even to indigenous people, like what has happened to, to, struck just their own structures i think it mm-hmm. really comes from what happened in the residential schools
2: mm-hmm.
1: and taking people off off the way off the land and the way they used to think about things and mm-hmm. then imposing imposing something upon them that m- sort of cuts them off from their own community i mean it does it just it cuts yeah. them off from their own their own heritage mm-hmm. now dolphus was chief of trout lake a very small community Uh, that you had to fly into. We drove there on the winter road, uh, which, you know, like I said, only opened for about two months. And he was an interesting character because he was, through him, I was able to show how he felt the residential schools had impacted him personally Mm -hmm. with alcoholism. Yes. Climbing out of that. Um, and realizing how, the white structures, the white impositions upon people had made them question themselves mm. so that they could they had internalized what white people thought about them, basically. Yeah. I mean it's something basically, I mean if you read Franz Fanon, mm-hmm. you sort of see it. Right? Sure. And and he also noticed that as a leader, how he needed to heal himself from all this if he was going to be an effective leader. He 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 would he would tell you that, you know, in the our culture all of us are important all of us give equal weight to a an issue when we're debating it they operate by consensus not like democracy as mm-hmm. we try, kind of think is the best for them it's consensus what's it that's important and there are no hierarchical structures that are keeping you from talking in the residential schools what they were all they were taught was hierarchy right. all they yeah. were all they were taught was you speak when you're told to speak Now shut up. Yeah. And so this had been transferred to them when they're in their communities trying to make decisions. And he felt like he was at a loss sometimes to get help from people who were so used to the white educational system that they were no longer sort of autonomous, independent, Mm -hmm. independently thinking people that could actually contribute to a debate. Yeah. So there's a, there were a lot of interesting things you could tell through him. Mm -hmm. He was also, and his community was also in the dilemma of being let 's say more on more traditional than most, but also having to deal with a lot of newer newfangled things like electricity cell phones um, <laughs> cell phones, toys, electronic mm-hmm. toys
2: mm-hmm.
1: and like you saw in a lot of indigenous communities, there's that sort of sense that, oh, the young people don 't really want to go out on the land what 's that about and I, a lot of them, a lot of people were being pulled into sort of the western. What Westerners think are you sure. know important implements in their lives, and so for him it's a struggle it 's like how much how much do we i don't want to deprive the community of the benefits of of the modern world on the other hand, how much do we get and how do we how do we assimilate it so that we're not losing ourselves in it hmm. well and he seems those are that, important
0: questions he seemed to have some notions about. Using tourism, uh, I think that's one of the things he talked about. Um, But I was also very interested um, in his daughter, Jessica, who is a scientist. uh, And she, if I'm not mistaken, has a a narrative where she talks a little bit about thinking about running for chief, but really worried. And a little bit under – I mean her dad seems to be a progressively thinking Native guy, but even she seemed – uh, not sure how he would take if she right. wanted to run. And her narrative, uh, seemed to connect with what you were saying. There seemed to be a lot of women actually with the skills and the education, um, to move, uh, uh to keep the infrastructure going. Uh, right. and in many cases, I think, uh, even another, um, young woman, I believe her name was Rhea Letcher, talks about yes. she was worried the best and the brightest We're not actually the people that were representing them, uh, at these critical moments. So is that an issue with either a younger generation or indeed a gender issue about future leadership?
1: Well, I think it's, I mean, sort of an issue everywhere, really. Well, true. Yeah. I, I think, I think what, what some, what some people would say is that when people were on the land itself, there was a much more sort of egalitarian sense Among indigenous people in, and though I think you, you know, from what I could see as an outsider, Mm -hmm. what I could see was that it seemed like there were gender roles, but they often very much overlapped. Mm -hmm. Paul Andrew talked about how there was no real woman's role because in the end, you have to know how to sew. You have to know how to cook. You have to know how to do everything because if you're by yourself in the bush, you have to survive. You have to know that stuff. Mm -hmm. And there's, there's traditions of women hunting. I mean, often they even own, they own 22 rifles and would hunt hunt smaller game. And the thing is, everyone went out on the bush in order to make hunting possible, even though men might have done that, you know, to to a larger extent. When they were pulled into communities and the Canadian government basically didn't want them living on the land, pulled them into communities, the gender roles, let's say, whatever there was, was much more pronounced then. Because now it's men are going to hunting, women stay back. Yeah, uh, in the communities yeah. raising the children and doing that, everyone was not now going off onto the land in that same way. So gender gender roles and disparities, I think, have been pronounced over time. So would Dolphus have felt the same way if it was a hundred years ago as he does now? That's not a question I can answer exactly. Sure. I think what you saw, what I saw, is a lot of competence among the women who who knew how to work in the structures that were available to them and uh but she was a little you know she's she's careful about how she she wants to phrase things she didn't mm-hmm. want to she loves her father of she course thinks, mm-hmm. uh, has great respect for him and but yeah, I think she felt that she could do the job yeah mm-hmm. the the good thing is in other communities there are there have been female chiefs mm mm-hmm. So it's not—it's not like you can say this some blanket thing about gender, you know. It's—it's mm-hmm. it's not. I think they can make inroads. Re-elect her in in Fort Simpson. She definitely seemed very competent, also. Mm-hmm. And you know
0: there. She seemed a little worried, though, about representation. Um, and then even some of the even some of the men, and I, I'm unfortunately I'm forgetting their names. Uh, toward the very end of the book, uh, there seems to be some impatience with, I think, the formal process of putting ideas in front of the, um, the elders
1: and working through to a resolution. That's right. When you're getting to the younger leaders, I think, I'd say that's probably a universal thing in a lot of ways. For sure. But mm-hmm. what, the way they, some, like, uh, a guy named Lawrence, uh, Nayali, what, what he told me is that, and I think a lot of the the older generation would sort of admit to this, but the people who went to residential schools came out with a lot of anger. Even mm-hmm. Kack, Stephen Kakfui talks about his anger. You know, maybe you, know, you should
0: just say a few words about the residential schools. I think we we dropped I think that. It's really important. Yeah, it, it's incredibly important. So yeah, maybe yeah. very briefly give a, a what were the residential uh, schools and what was their uh, ultimate okay. impact.
1: Well, a, a woman named Valerie Conrad, who was in the residential schools, described it to me as state-sanctioned kidnapping. Yeah,
0: um,
1: what it was—it was an attempt to cut pe- cut Indigenous people from the land. It's very clear. The first Prime Minister of Canada basically outlined what it would mean. It wasn't enough to teach Indians—I put that in quote marks because they don't refer to themselves yes. as Indians up there. Mm-hmm. It wasn't enough to teach Indians how to read and how to write. You, you had to take them away from their parents. You had to take them away from their communities, and you had to instill white ways of thinking into them. And that was – that in a nutshell is what residential schools uh, – that was their role for 150 years. The last residential schools closed in the 1990s. So in that whole period, especially I'd say, I would say after World War II, the people I was speaking to in the remote places, they could be reached – by the canadian authorities by plane the planes would land by their Mm. you know rivers and lakes or whatever and basically pull people out young kids out Mm. from their families take them to these residential schools which were scattered throughout canada and in the northwest territories often the the parents didn't even know where their kids were going Mm. and in the residential schools the, the which were run by religious orders, Roman Catholic mainly, but also yep. Anglican. Hmm. The people were broken from their culture. That was the whole point. Yeah. You were not allowed to speak your language. You were beaten if you spoke your language. Mm-hmm. You were subject to hierarchical ways of education, the whole thing. And so people came back to their communities no longer – these kids came back to their communities no longer knowing how to speak, even to maybe – their languages mm. they couldn't even communicate sometimes even with their parents, yeah, and they no longer knew how to live off the land. they were almost ostracized in some cases mm. from their own communities because they were just like this version of a white person now coming to li- yeah. live live among them again so this this was incredibly disruptive it's led to it's pretty much the reason you can talk about all the dysfunctions that are are in, in indigenous communities with alcoholism. Uh, domestic abuse, sexual yes. abuse, all mm-hmm. that is a result of that colonial effort to break people from the land. they succeeded in really damaging that culture. So then, now to get back to your point about yes. younger people, a lot of the younger people have inherited a lot of that trauma. They didn't go to the residential schools, but oh. obviously their parents are raising them. So this stuff is continuing down the road, but some of them recognize... That their parents' generation, as one person was it was said, was kind of damaged, yeah, by that, even mm-hmm. those people who had stuck up against the resource extraction industry in the seventies, they had their own set ways of doing things um, and the younger people are trying to get back to another way, let's say that, yeah. Often with the direction of elders, it's not, it's not completely cut from the elders. They want, as they say, they want direction. Push us, mm-hmm. give us some guidance, but don't block us from new ideas and different ways of thinking.
0: Um, I want to very quickly, because we're running out of time here, I, I want to talk uh, – I, I, I'm, I'm going to take us away from necessarily the main narrative, and I want to talk a little bit about how you do what you do. Uh, the, the drawings are so lush uh as i said before they're so packed your pages are i mean there's no grid to speak of uh I, I, you don't seem to have a a mapped uh journey uh that you're on uh how are you able to flow this narrative uh do these spreads that essentially like recreate uh, as we were talking about how communities hunted and they all moved together um uh How do you do it? Uh, I know you take photos, I think, to some extent. Is that the
1: basis of it? Uh, tell us a little little bit. Hmm? Yeah, I take photos, of course, but to, I was a little worried about it, as I always am, because I'm going into the past often. I did not live on the bush, in the bush in the 1960s and 1950s. (laughs) So how do I recreate that? I mean, obviously I'm asking a lot of questions that help me, but in Yellowknife, there's a very good archive that I could research on the, mm. on the web. So I had access to a lot of photographs that were taken in the twenties all through up to the nineties, basically, which showed me what camps looked like. Yeah. I often did a lot of research on how people, uh, you know, Dene people skinning a moose, how they're building these boats. Uh, you could, if you search long enough and sometimes you're putting a lot of time into the search, mm-hmm. you can find something that you can, gives you an idea of how things are done. In this particular case, especially Paul Andrews' case, I sent that chapter to him and to some other indigenous people that got sent. He saw it. He affirmed it. I see. That to me me mattered a great deal Mm -hmm. because I want to get those things right. Sure. As far as the lush landscapes and all that, you know – I want the reader to get their money's worth. <laughs> no, I mean, honestly. You like, deliver, brother. <laughs> no, I mean, honestly, it's so impressive. It's so beyond mm. my scope. I'm a very urban guy. Mm. This is, it's amazing. It's overpowering almost. I want to give the reader some sense of that, of the awe. And, and sometimes when you're drawing it, you get into sort of the spiritual framework that might be just, an ounce of what a Dene person might feel, you know, sure. but it's – it's drawing is one of those things where you're really trying to inhabit something, and for me personally, I get a lot out of it, so I put a lot into it, if you know what I mean. Sure. Well, on the flip side of the natural
0: beauty, there is this the dystopian compl- complexity of modern industrial the, – the, the modern industrial scarring of the land, and you document that that just as well. That's just in in its own weird and um, sad way. There's a fair amount of all I mean, when you when you do these oil p- plants, or even the the fracking, or the the gold mine at the very end, where you you uh,
1: those are rather haunting too. Yeah, well, I try to get. I, I want to get all that stuff right. I think it's important to give everything its due, even things that you don't find attractive. Yes. <laughs> um, and yeah, I mean, you know, when you when you look up. Fracking images of fracking, you go. Oh no! All those pipes and tubes. Oh god! <laughs> but you know, you just sort of you take a deep breath and you just sort of calmly approach it and you let it build, right? You just let it build. Well, I tell you, it looks like they were all there uh, from what I could tell. Uh, well, look, we're, we're,
0: our time is running out, but I I am curious. I'd love to hear you talk a little about the the the, the kind of the young guy we meet at the end, who uh, who who seems within the course of the book to be a kind of you know, a vision for where maybe native communities are going. I think his name is Eugene uh, Boulanger. Yeah. Um, and What can you tell us about him? I mean he, he, he was having a bit of going back to the land.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean that's what you find with some of these younger people uh, who are very cognizant of what's going on. First of all, you find a really good critique of Western European civilization – colonialism and capitalism Mm. all those young people are really impressive on how they view what has been imposed upon them and their task their mission is to decolonize themselves to stop thinking of themselves in western frameworks and he's a real good eugene is a real good example of that he told this absolutely beautiful story about being taken up and he's very urban in a lot of ways but Mm. he was he wants to reconnect to the land so he was taken up to his old uh, town uh, hamlet Toledo and he was on a hunt and he shot a caribou and he tells this beautiful story about bending over the caribou to start working on processing it and how he felt that he was he felt sort of he was part of something that extended into the past and something that will extend into the future which to me was like the great lesson I got out of speaking to the Dene people is this sense of continuity,
2: hmm.
1: and he was able to sort of articulate that. You know, we as Westerners think we don't think with that sort of humility yeah. <laughs> that that someone like Eugene was able to 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 do. You know, and so there's there's real lessons to be learned from from that, hmm. and I think someone like that to me represents. A great hope going forward. Like he's obviously part, part of the modern world, but he realizes that what the Denny are is really, they are the land. Yeah. Yeah. And those people who, who can find their way out of all the traumas that they've suffered up there, that's, I think that's what they understand.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: Uh, well, you know, I think
0: that that's actually the perfect, uh, Hard-nosed and optimistic uh, point uh, that we can kind of end this on. It's uh, actually, Joe, really great to talk to you. Uh, really, the book is Extraordinary, Paying the Land by Joe Sacco, the latest uh, from Joe Sacco, out from Metropolitan Books in this month, July, if I'm not
1: mistaken. It's on the 7th, July on 7th. On the July
0: 7th. Um, Joe, uh, it's a pleasure to talk to you, uh, even more of a pleasure to read your book. And good luck to you, and um, hopefully it won't, I won't be as long before I talk to you again.
1: Lovely speaking to you, Calvin. Awesome.
0: Thanks. Thank you so much.